Hi everyone, it's Greg, and here are some podcasts to check out during this season of Lent in March 2021. It's been a year since the COVID pandemic shut down church life as we knew it, and we're taking this opportunity to talk about virus pop culture on this month's Popping Collars. Special guest Shayna Watson comes on our new Popping Collars game show, The Canon, as we all attempt to draft the ultimate collection of Kevin Costner films. Our journey through the movies of 1990 takes a strange detour on Going on 30 as Betsy and I discuss Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands. On The Sacred Six, we've arrived at season three of The Wire. Listen to special guest Eric Matoye break down the pros and cons of the Hamsterdam experience as we discuss the episode Back Burners. Finally, it's time for another PC book club, but with a twist. Enjoy the early April Fool's shenanigans. Thanks for listening, and keep those collars popped. What's it streaming on? It's on uh, CBS All Access. Soon to be Paramount Plus. Yes, as I learned from the Super Bowl. Right. Because everything has to have a plus after it, which I'm not sure what that means. Apple Plus. Apple TV Plus. Is it? Yeah, that's the streaming service. And Disney Plus. I mean, the only thing that's not a plus is like home box office maximum. It's <laughs> like the only non-plus chat. But I find Max, Max is like leaning on an like an old. That's like extreme. Like that's. Like, we have the most HBO. <laughs> like we even like, have Arliss. <laughs> Okay, welcome to well, the we PC. Well, we should say, we should say, surprise, happy April Fools, right? Oh, early April Fools, this early week April before, Fools. week before April Fools, or day before April Fools. It's the day before April Fools. April Fools. April Fools. You tuned in to the PC Book Club thinking that you would get the old familiar voices, the old solemn familiar voices. So smart, you can just hear the wisdom. Soothing tones. Soothing out of them, yeah. Dulcet. Dulcet yeah. tones of Ricardo Avila. But guess what? Oh, swerve, baby. <laughs> Look you know out what we call, You know what we call that? Let's use a 2020 word. This is a pivot. It's a bit of a pivot. We're pivoting. Oh, no. Yeah. You got peanut butter in my chocolate. Oh, you got chocolate in my peanut butter. <laughs> it's me and Betsy this time. You got Greg and Betsy. Uh, yes. So welcome to the PC Book Club. My name is Greg Knight. I'm the director of children and youth ministries at Church of Bethesda by the Sea in Palm Beach, Florida, where we are gearing up for Easter in a little while. We're doing 10 Easter services on Easter Sunday. 10, oh 10 double digits. And if we Jesus need to. Jesus is going to be, Jesus is going to be exhausted rising from the dead that many times. <laughs> and if we need to, we may do 13. Uh, no, we're doing this really cool thing where we do three simultaneous services with three members, three separate members of the clergy, separate pods of choir, and separate instrument ensembles at different locations at the same time on the property so that we can get as many people through 
as possible. So every hour and a half, we have three services happening at the exact same time. Isn't that cool? That sounds like the simulcast that, that NBC tried for the Olympics that didn't. It is. It's out. the red, white, and blue. <laughs> there we go. Wow. Uh, well, good luck with that. I hope that that works out. Thanks. What is, oh, uh, oh wait. And also with me. Oh, is- I'm, oh, uh, I'm Betsy Carmody. I'm the head chaplain and teacher here at Episcopal High School in Alexandria, Virginia, where we are. Preparing to welcome kids back to campus, I guess. Again, um, they went home for spring break and they've been they've been virtual for a little bit. And they're going to come back for kind of a last session. Everyone calls this time at Episcopal Camp Episcopal because the weather's beautiful and the trees are going off and it's just awesome. And we need it to be even more awesome because with COVID, everyone gets to spend more time outside with each other. So I'm hoping that that good spirit will just flood the campus. Do you get cherry blossoms down where you Oh, are? yes. Yeah? Oh, yes. Nice. Listen, we're at the reflecting pool, man. Like, that was the big cherry blossom situation that happens around the Jefferson Memorial, which was such an issue last year because right. people, people were like, oh, nobody's down here because of the pandemic, so I'm just going to go. And then other people were like, hey, nobody's down here because of the pandemic. And then they shut it down. And it was like, nope. Sorry, you were out here taking awesome Instagram pictures by yourself, and now everybody figured it out. So you got to shut it down. No more. Shut it down. Betsy, we typically talk about movies. Oh, the two of us. I watch Um, stuff, Greg. Exactly. I I, I watch things, and in turn, I know things. Yes, because because I watch. Yes. Um, But this time, we're talking about books, something that I have expressed before, not a big. I mean, I'm a fan of books, I guess, but I'm not a big reader. Maybe we can talk a little bit about how we approach reading in general. How do you experience like reading? How do you pick what to read? All of that stuff. Audio books. That's where I am right now. I've been, you know, of course, a hard book reader and I have some that I love having physically, but I I don't know whether podcast culture completely turned me over to audiobooks. But I've gotten into like looking up like, oh, who's the who's the who's the voice actor doing this one? You know, like I have I have voice actors I'm a fan of and recognize that, oh, they did that book. And and I just I've gotten into listening to audiobooks. I've also like with road trips, it's one of my favorite things to do. So like in the summertime, I'll burn through a bunch of books. Uh, My parents give me an audible subscription. Mm-hmm. for christmas every year and so i just blaze through some books and i really so, love it so i will look for like things that are recommended and kind of bounce off of books that i've been listening to so when you go into an audiobook you just like rip it off like i mean you just go into the book i mean especially road trips like you like it's not like i'll listen to a couple of chapters and then i'll switch over and yeah. listen to i'm, blah, I'm blah, burning blah. burning four hours on a book wow what about you I'm a slow reader. Like, I think that's probably why I don't like it because I'm like, not only am I reading every word, my wife gets really annoyed by this because she's a fast reader. She's like, not only is she a fast reader, she's like a skimmer to the point that it's like, if she runs into a chapter that has like a ton of descriptions and stuff like that, she'll just skip ahead until something starts happening. What? I know. Right. And and like, I'm not like that. I'm like, I'm concentrating on every single word. And then if I find my mind drifting, which often happens while I'm reading, 
I'll actually go back and reread the 10 pages that I just read, but wasn't thinking about as I was reading them. I was thinking about something else. So like that makes me a very slow reader. And I think that that's probably part of the struggle that I have with reading. It's not that I can't listen to audiobooks. It's just that it's not, it's never been a habit of mine. So I don't necessarily Mm -hmm. do it. So if I do read, it's like me and a book, like, and, and it's actually the physical book. Like that's how lame I am with this. Like I, you know, even a tablet, what I'll find with the tablet is that I'll keep looking ahead at how much more I have left to read. And that Mm. like makes me, I mean, not anxious, but it just makes me think, Oh God, I'm going to be here for a while. (laughs) Whereas like with a regular book, I don't know, maybe it's just flipping pages and stuff. It just makes me think, okay, well, here we go. And I can make it to the end of this chapter and I can put it down and I can pick it up the next day and read another chapter, yeah. you know? So hey, I guess with me, I start to look at it. I'm like, Oh, only 30 minutes left. Feel mm-hmm. sad. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing that I have trouble with, and Liz has talked about this before, like she and I have strategized about this is like finding like stuff to read because it's like, I don't know how you find these things outside of like, you know, New York times reviews or something. Like, I don't know how you, you know, it always blows my mind when something becomes number one bestseller on the New York Times list where I'm like, how did people find out about this book? Like, so, it's not like they advertised on the radio or something. Right. Like, so I will say some of my, and this maybe maybe this gets us a little bit into what we're talking about today. So how did I find Hidden Valley Road? How did this become? So this is my book, Hidden Valley Road by Robert Kolker. There, Greg's got it physically. I have the Wikipedia page up because I audiobooked it and I don't have a physical book. So- Yes. Yeah, so, so how I got into this book is I'm a fan and people of this podcast who know me know that I listened to my favorite murder. It was, you know, a podcast that I got into at the beginning of it and, you know, longtime fan and, but I don't have like a state sexy, no get murdered tattoo, but I'm a fan. Um, but it's, they, they will recommend books, you know, so there are, there are different books and shows on true crime and, and, as a topic, right. That, that are interesting. And so I will get into that, you know um, you know, the stranger beside me or, you know, some books that I'd like never really gotten into and we'll, we'll find them through podcasts and through things like that, that I'm interested in. So like podcast people recommending books. Mm -hmm. And so that's where, how I've kind of, will get into a few veins of things. So hidden Valley road, while not being a true crime story is a story about uh, the journey of schizophrenia in one American family, the Galvin family, and that six six members of their family had schizophrenia out of um, and all all the boys, some of the boys of the family, out of the twelve children that they had, and this look at how mental health and schizophrenia in particular are treated inside the American mental health system from the you know nineteen sixties going forward. And and just this portrait of this family. I, I ended up structuring the book as a family saga with science woven in. I start with the parents, Don and Mimi Galvin, marrying during World War II, moving to Colorado and raising their family. It was not lost on me that the dozen children of the Galvin family perfectly spanned the baby boom. Donald, the oldest, was born in 1945, and Lindsay in 1965. Their century was the American century, filled with optimism, at least in the early years. You start to see some warning signs that something is amiss, but the parents have no preparation for what happens to them next. The kids first start to have their psychotic breaks in the late 60s. 
And I have to admit that while I was reporting, I thought a lot about American pastoral, Philip Roth's story of a family of this same generation that believed in the American dream and felt confident and invulnerable until that family fell to pieces. One of the things that I found really interesting was looking at it and thinking about Mimi Galvin, who's the mother, and how mental health has treated mothers and mothering and what how it's often laid at the feet of mothers, the mental struggles of their children, and that they've either mothered them too much or they haven't mothered them enough for it's, you know, this, so much of this kind of, and I, you know, it, we can take it all back to Freud or whatever we want to do, but this idea that the, the, a lot of the problems are mother-based, parenting-based, and very often not laid at the feet of the father. And I found that interesting, as particularly as you're trying to kind of looking at, I'm very interested in C DNA of, of systems. I'm a, I did a sociology concentration in college. And so this, I see this in my looking at like, well, when, where are we still running into that, that DNA inside our mental health industry? So I've, I've wondered about that nurture nature and watching, watching the psychiatric industry wrestle with that with this one family in ways that the system fails them in ways that, you know, th they are so much that their family can't handle them and what all of that means in the long run. What'd you think? Well, what stood out to me when I first started reading about the schizophrenia present in this family, my initial sort of body reaction was fear, not necessarily for the family or for the boys, but just the idea that chaos can happen at any time and you have to roll with the chaos if you're like either you're caught up in the whirlwind or you have to deal with the whirlwind. And it makes me realize that that's how uh, psychiatry in this country towards schizophrenia, like that's how it was set up. It was set up as the system of fear. Mm. Like we don't understand these people. They're not acting within what we determine as normal human behavior. And so therefore we need to put them over there or if they're going to be in your house, you need to keep them they, quiet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like it very this much can't spill over into society. Yeah. It reminded me of also liking, you know, in you know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, like mm -hmm. that sort of, you know, that peak inside mental facilities and as well as just kind of a general fascination with how sanitariums, how all these things kind of worked. And we should say this, this is a book of journalism that reads like a novel and Robert Coker yeah. needs to be commended for his writing ability because it's really yeah. just incredibly written. Yeah. I think when you talk about that, a lot of it, the book feels like it's about control and out of control that there are elements of there's only so much you can do, but the schizophrenia shows up out of nowhere. What did we do? And then, so then we, we seek causes and effects because we want some sort of control over how, well, how could we prevent this or, or could this have been prevented? And then, then that leads to blame mm -hmm. and that presence as well. But the book is this, this control and not control. I want control. I can't find control. I, but that so much of our human existence is about control and not control. Towards the end of this book, it talks a lot about neurodiversity and the spectrum. Uh, obviously, you know, we talk about autism as being a spectrum, but yeah. all of this stuff, 
like exists on a spectrum of understanding and influence and can be affected by prescription drugs, by mushrooms, by like all kinds of sort of different things can affect the way the brain receives signals and transmits electricity from one neuron to the other. And we can't just, you know, put everybody into boxes. Yeah. And I think it's our, it's our hope that we can put you into a schizophrenia box, but we just can't. Right. Because probably like you're on this end and there's another person on this end and you can be treated with this and another person doesn't need drugs at all, you know? Well, and that all of this goes back to that element you were talking about at the beginning of normalcy, Mm -hmm. that there's some normal way to be, there's some normal way for your brain to work. There's some normal speed, Greg, that you're supposed to be able to read at, but you're not right. So that it's what I've found in education is, you know, we've done in my old school, we did a lot of brain-based teaching and learning and that there's a lot of different ways to learn. And that doesn't mean that we're a school that's really able to support all different kinds of learning differences, but that it does mean we acknowledge that there isn't a normal, that there's, there's something that you may excel at that I may not, something might be easier for you than it is for me. And I find that to be so much healthier because so often we just beat ourselves up for not being normal, for not doing things and, and excelling at the speed that the people around us are excelling at because somehow we've had it driven into us, this idea that, well, there's a right way. Um, somehow, because we have standardized testing in schools. Yeah. Like it's the oh, very absolutely. first thing that we learn is that there's a standard absolutely. and you're either above the standard or below the standard. Yeah. And, and, and the groups that are trying to work against that stuff, I mean, it is an uphill battle because mm-hmm. there is so much of the world that tells you otherwise. Hidden Valley Road. Good job. Hidden Valley Road. I yeah. loved it. Had a good read. Yeah. Thanks, Betsy. Yeah, I'm glad you like that. All right. I'm going to switch over to my book. Let's do it. My book is called Everything Matters by Ron Curry. Um, There's a way of describing this novel that can get you a little too far into the weeds. So I'm just going to keep it pretty simple because ultimately it's a pretty simple story. It's the story of a little boy. Well, I mean, it's the story of him. It's the story of a guy. I mean, I don't know. Okay, let me start over. (laughs) It's the story of a boy, Junior Thibodeau, who, when he is in utero, hears a voice inside of his head that tells him the day, the time, the date that the planet Earth is going to get hit by a comet. And there's nothing he can do about it. He can't stop it. The earth is going to get hit by this comet. And so it becomes a question of what do you do? If you have this knowledge that the world is going to end on this day at this time, what do you do? Like, do you keep it to yourself? Do you tell people? Do people believe you if you tell them? How does it affect your relationships with your family? How does it affect the the, relationships with people you love? How does it affect your job? How does it affect the way that you think about life? knowing that it's going to end when you're 36. Yeah, if you if you can smoking. Right. Smoking. If you can see the clock ticking down, how does it affect the way that you see life? And that's ultimately the the whole novel right there. But the way it's told, it becomes like a character study of not only Junior, uh who's the protagonist of the book, but it's also about his girlfriend slash wife. It's about his brother. It's about his father. It's about all of these relationships in his life and how they're affected by this voice that's inside of Junior's head. So there's there's a moment in this book that really stands out to me 
And it also, it's a really clever trick for the author to get you, the reader, to understand what it is that his character is going through. And one of the big set pieces is uh, the Challenger launch. And uh, the character that we're following, Junior, he's in middle school, elementary school, middle school, something like that. When the Challenger launches, and it's the same scenario that we know, right? That, you know, teacher on board you know, this is a really great moment. Kids are watching this at school, all of that stuff. And at first you're kind of thinking, okay, so is this like an alternate reality? Like something's going to happen, like the challenger's not, like nothing's going to happen to it. It's going to just go on its mission like normal. But in the back of your mind, you know, you know what the fate of the challenger is. You know, as the reader, what the fate of the challenger is. Nobody else in the story. I love no. that they made the point that because the little voice is talking, right? right? And that point that like at like so many people post this time said that they were all watching it, mm-hmm. but like people who were adults at the time. Right. But the fact that it wasn't on live TV, it was only in schools. So it was America's children having this collective trauma experience together. And mm-hmm. that was like, and you know that the challenger is going to explode and that those yes. people are going to perish on their fall back towards earth. Like, yes. you know it. And, but none of the characters in the novel know mm-hmm. it. And that's how it translates. Like, that's how you kind of understand Junior's dilemma of like, I know this, but nobody else knows it. Yeah. You know, when you have to think about like your, your directives, right? If you, you know, you're doing your will and, you know, what, what do I want to have happen to my body you know what sort of measures do i want taken to to preserve my life and i very much related with junior at the beginning of the movie i mean of the book like i I mean it feels like a movie it feels like um that i want to do everything in my power to to protect my life Mm -hmm. and thereby protect the lives of other people Mm -hmm. so the idea of then Awkwardly telling people, having it ruin relationships and, you know, trying to drink it away, trying to kind of do all of those things to it. I, I, you can see the torture inside that and I get it and it's tough. And, but then wanting to somehow turn to some sort of scientific, even though we're not even quite sure the, the methods that come up to save humanity from his telling you know, if they're even going to be helpful or successful, like we're not even quite sure, mm-hmm. but I really related to that flailing that I'm going to do everything possible to secure my life. Of course, you know, Junior's circumstance, his knowledge, his, his predicament, um, is just sort of a ham handed metaphor for what we all know, which is that we're all finite. We're all going to be shuffling off this mortal coil probably sooner rather than later. And so it becomes a question of, and it's a question that I'm preoccupied with, obviously, because I wrote an entire book about it. Um, and people ask me sometimes, I often get asked, you know, did writing the book help you resolve that question for yourself? And the answer is, hell no. It doesn't work that way, and I wish it did. But that's, that's one of the reasons why I like writing fiction, because you can, you can resolve these questions. You know, you can bring the dead back to life. You can get the girl back. You can do whatever you want. You play God. Um, and that's the big appeal of, of writing fiction for me, as opposed to memoir. So I've talked about on this in the podcast before that, you know, I have an anxiety about death 
as much a person of faith as I am, and as much as I understand the theology of our church and, and, you know, this sort of what it is that we sort of talk about when we talk about an, an afterlife, whatever after this is in, in my mind, in my mind, now I'm just speaking for me. I know very little about my existence before I was born in this body that I'm in now. And I can only assume, based on that, that what's on the other side of this body is going to be something very different than what I'm experiencing right now. Mm-hmm. And I like, I like what I'm experiencing. I like me. I like my family. I like my daughters. I like eating spicy chicken sandwiches at Wendy's. I like the fact that I don't like to read books often. I like movies. I like my life. I like this. I like this world. I like the sky. I like my church. I like all of this stuff, right? And whatever's on the other side of this, the existential problem that I always face when it comes to death is that I don't know what's mm-hmm. after this. And I know that it's not this, probably, likely. It's not this. And and certainly it won't be a Greg Knight living through the 90s again, doing like whatever that stuff was, you know, listening to Nirvana and, you know, being a slacker. And I like being that stuff. And um, and this book gets at that. It gets at this existential crisis. And this book has like a, it has a fatalist understanding. Like there's no heaven. There's nothing on the other side of death in this book. At least nothing that you know of. There's a voice. So maybe there's something. But uh, But towards the end of the book, there's this paragraph. And somehow in my warped sense of, you know, anxiety about death and whatever's on the other side, I find it a little bit comforting where it says everything ends and everything matters. Everything matters, not in spite of the end of you and all that you love, but because of it, everything is all you've got. Your wife's lips, your daughter's eyes, your brother's heart, your father's bones, and your own grief. And after everything is nothing. So you are wise to welcome everything, the good and the bad alike, and to cling to it all. Gather it in, seek the meaning in sorrow, and don't ever, ever turn away, not once from here until the end, because it is all the same, it is all unfathomable, and it is all infinitely preferable to the one dreadful alternative, which Mm. is that you never existed to begin with. Mm -hmm. To love is to have pain, to be in relationship is to have pain, to, you know, that, that that's how we define, we, you know, that dualism of life. You know, that we we live through it and don't look away from it. Don't hide from your life. That's such a powerful paragraph. You know, I recently gave in because, you know, I needed more television to watch. I don't know. And so I'm now like uh, subscribing to PBS. Like I'm giving like, you know, money so that I can get my little weed a passport so I can watch all the British shows that I want to watch now. And so, but um, one of the things I've been watching some of is uh, that um, uh, Robert Gates's show, Finding Your Roots. Mm. And so you look at that show and you're talking about like people's second great grandfather. And like, you're talking about these people in the past that they are not thinking forward and conceiving of you right. living now, right. you know, Jim Gaffigan and being a stand-up <laughs> comedian, you know, but it's like all the pieces matter. Every part of us that what we're giving to the world and all of those sorts of things that it all matters. Mm-hmm just this moving forward of little pieces of things, this yeah. kind of sower mentality of life 
that we don't. Well, in a lot of ways, it relates to Hidden Valley Road, right? It's this idea that because the Galvin family went through what they did, the youngest daughter, her daughter, Mimi's granddaughter, is now part of the scientific team working on studying schizophrenia. It's all a circle. It's all this cycle of generations, not you. It's not a cycle of you. It's a cycle of generations on this planet. And that's what's lovely is that there is an end and there is a beginning when your end comes, but it's not your beginning. So that's my pick. Everything Matters by Ron Curry. All right, Betsy. Thank you for doing it. Hey, we knocked it out. PC Book Club. We did it. Look at this. Look at this. I'm Uh, so proud. Yeah. So join us for our next PC Book Club. I'm sure it'll be a few months from now. It'll be great. And it'll be back to Liz and Ricardo. This was just a fun kind of one-off for us. But I'm so glad we got a chance to do it. To talk books with you. In the meantime, keep reading books and... Keep those collars popped. Yeah. Pop, pop. Yeah.